Star Wars, give me those Star Wars, nothing but Star Wars, don't have that Hello and welcome back to Give Me Those Star Wars, the official Star Wars show of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly, and my guest today is living proof that if you leave enough passive-aggressive comments about this show, you too can appear on an episode. You know my guest is one of the hosts of Waiting for Doom, a Doom Patrol podcast. Please welcome Mr. Paul Hicks to the show. How are you, Paul? Ah, about bloody time, Ryan. (laughs) Isn't it, though? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's great to be here, finally. Well, thank you very much for doing this. Um, People, Paul and I have a couple of topics to cover on this episode, but before we get into any of those, I have to ask, Paul, how did you become a Star Wars fan? Ah, well, this is an interesting story, because I am a very old person, so... um, (laughs) I was born in the late 60s, so uh, when Star Wars first came out, I was the prime age for it. I think it's pretty much no better age than being around where I was. So um, I remember very clearly I was at a friend's house and I was playing with some Matchbox uh, space toy tank thing, which had a little turret on it. And this kid I was playing with, he said, oh, I saw something like that in a movie. And I was going, oh, that's interesting. wonder what movie he's talking about. And he said, oh, I think it was called Star Wars. And we went into his house and he found the paper and there was uh, the films that were on at the time. So this was... It would have to be early 1978. So I know Star Wars came out in 77 in um, mm-hmm. in America, but in Australia, I don't think it came out till like late October. Okay. And back in those days, if a film was successful, it was around forever. Mm-hmm. So you could so. My birthday was coming up, and my birthday was in March, and a friend of the family said he would take me to a movie, and he we usually saw James Bond films together, and he said, you know, Spy Who Loved Me is out, and I said, I've heard about this new film called Star Wars, I'd quite like to see that, um, and he did a bit of checking, would it be suitable for me to see at that age and everything, so, you know, short story, I went and saw Star Wars, and I bloody loved it, <laughs> and um, yeah, I saw it several times at the cinema in the first run uh, back in the se- late 70s um, and my pretty much loved it for the rest of my uh, yeah, quite a while. Anyway, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, for the purposes of this podcast, I think you made the right call, but you probably would have been happy either way. The Spy Who Loved Me is one of my favorite Bond movies. So despite, it is a good one. Yeah, yeah. Despite its cheesiness and, and some of the campy elements that haven't aged well, I still really like that one. Uh, for Your Eyes Only is my favorite, but Okay, that's a good one too. Yeah, I I wouldn't dispute that one. That was a good call. But people, at this point, we usually do the Star Wars current events segment. There are a lot of tidbits and information about Rogue One dripping out of Lucasfilm these days, but there was really only one news item that I wanted to talk about. It's not a spoiler. It's actually a rather sad event. Back on August 13th, Kenny Baker, the actor behind R2-D2, passed away. He was 81 years old, only about 11 days short of 82. He was born on August 24th, 1934, and Paul and I are recording this on August 23rd, so tomorrow would have been his 82nd birthday. Baker played Mm. R2-D2 in the first six Star Wars films, as well as the Star Wars Holiday Special and on The Muppets. He had dozens of other film and television credits, including Labyrinth, Time Bandits, Flash Gordon, The Elephant Man, and Willow. His passing was not sudden to those who knew him. He had been sick for quite a while, which prevented him from appearing in The Force Awakens and even attending the premiere. 
I know the entire Star Wars fan community is sad over the passing of Kenny Baker. On behalf of Give Me Those Star Wars and everyone at the Fire & Water Podcast Network, I wanted to take a few minutes with Paul just to talk about the actor and also the character of R2-D2. I think it's difficult because we didn't see him in the role. He was always in the droid suit in many ways. I think he was more of a puppeteer, but he was still vital to giving R2-D2 life. Uh, so I can't talk about the performance without looking at the quirks of the droid. And for me, that's what made R2-D2 real. Uh, but Paul, what do you think? Were you sad to hear that Kenny Baker had died? And did you like R2-D2? Uh, of course I said, yeah. I, I love R2-D2. Um, I mean, it's hard because he's a man inside a, a prop, mm-hmm. basically. Um, but I think if you just look at the work that he did in Empire Strikes Back, um, R2-D2 is just full of character in that film, you know, uh, particularly when he gets to Dagobah. And that's, yeah. you know, one of my favorite things in the film is uh, R2's uh, sort of loyalty um, and sort of <laughs> strained relationship with Yoda, <laughs> like, um, you know. Artu's determination to get the torch back from Yoda when Yoda's uh, raiding everything that Luke <laughs> yes. and I, you know, I think it's you know it's the fact that there's a man inside there making the decisions about you know when to turn the head and things like that. You know, mm-hmm. it's just full of life, and I don't think you get that with um, CGI Artu. You know, so I think he did a wonderful performance, and you know, not an enviable performance. I mean, being stuck in a tin for filming and all that, particularly in the desert, that would suck. Oh yeah, um, oh yeah swampy environments and things like that you know it just sounds like a tinier farm in there but um yeah he did a great job and also like i remember being really excited to see time bandits because i knew that kenny baker was in it and he played fidget and that and that's one of my favorite films time bandits just love that one so yeah it's really sadly missed yeah and i agree with everything you said particularly about his role in uh, especially the empire strikes back and you look at the scenes on dagobah all of his interactions from falling out of luke's x-wing at the beginning to when luke is trying to clean him and he like sort of spits up vomits and everything and i know that's not necessarily controlled by kenny baker but yeah those moments when he's fighting with yoda and everything they're fighting over the the sort of lamp the flashlight and everything it's it was so good um my favorite R2-D2 moment uh, in all of the films is at the end of Empire Strikes Back when they're when the heroes are trying to escape from Cloud City, uh, and he like hijacks the the Cloud City like computer system and opens the door, and Lando and Leia and Chewie they run out onto the landing pad, and R2 like kind of shoots out this smoke screen at the stormtroopers yeah. that are chasing them, and then there's just this shot where you just see him rolling through the doorway like out of the smoke through the threshold while these lasers are kind of like arcing around him and over him and like kind of missing him. And it's such a great heroic moment. I mean, he, in many ways, he stole the show in that movie, uh, which is a hard thing to do given how strong everybody was in that movie. Um, Yeah. And I mean, I know like a lot of that is a suit. A lot of that is just mechanical, like remote control things, but there's still part of it that was him and the part, I think it would have been less than it would have been lesser without Kenny Baker. So yeah, it feels like there's a soul inside that droid. Right, it does. It does. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. And the droids are also, they're such a fundamental part of Star Wars. Like, when when you think of Star Wars and what separates it from every other fantasy or every other science fiction franchise or, or intellectual property, I think the three things in order that I think of are, first, the Force, the nature of the Force and the Jedi, and then the ships and the combat in space, and then the droids. 
those aren't things that you find in those other franchises. Really yeah, no, seeing, yeah. seeing Star Wars in the late 70s, um, you know, R2-D2 was just such a huge impact on me as a kid. And, you know, from the moment the Jawas shoot him, it was just, you know, <laughs> in love with that little guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's a, and it's the human connection that you're able to make with a robot that is not humanoid. Uh, yeah. But it's, the, yeah, it's a credit to George Lucas and everybody involved in the production, the designers, Kenny Baker, of course, everyone that, that made that thing so special. And and I'm yeah. wondering, like, going forward, I mean, R2-D2's part was very minimal in The Force Awakens. I think we'll see a lot more of him in Episode Eight. And I wonder now, without his presence, I mean, I don't know if they actually have somebody in the droid anymore or not, or if the entire thing is completely done by machines and a team of sort of engineers, it might be. And... I wonder if we'll be able to know the difference. I want. I. I wonder if it'll feel like it doesn't like that soul of the droid that you kind of mentioned. I wonder if that will be obvious or not. We. I actually hope that they cast someone else, and okay. they, this is the new guy to play R two D two. I'd be really happy if they made it another person, and that was that person's career. I'd be very happy for that. Okay. All right. I, oh, I'm. Hmm. I'm sure that. And I think they did a good job with the new guy who played Chewbacca because. Uh, Peter Mayhew was really only in the Chewbacca suit a couple of times, and most of them were like close-up shots. Anytime Chewie was running around or being really physically active, they had a different actor than the normal one in there. Mm. And that actually, that sort of segues into a weird kind of topic that I wanted to mention was that, you know, Kenny Baker is passing. He was, I, I associate him with one of the original crew, one of the original cast from the first Star Wars movie. And you think about like all of the major heroes of that movie and the villains. We've only lost a couple of them up to this point. Peter Cushing died back in 1994, and Alec Guinness died back in 2000. And now with Kenny Baker dead, and like I said, Peter Mayhew isn't in the best of health, and some of these actors are getting it up there in age. Carrie Fisher hasn't led the most healthy life. Uh, and, and I'm going to be wondering. I also saw something that was really kind of weird, so now... Peter Cushing, who played Grand Moff Tarkin, died on August 11th, 1994. Sir Alec Guinness, who played Obi-Wan Kenobi, died on August 5th, 2000. And Kenny Baker died on August 13th. And so there's something about the month of August that is pretty bad for these characters. I think we really need to get through the next week. And, yeah. And I, and I think we'll be okay for a little while. But yeah, that just has me... A weird kind of... I guess just a freaky coincidence, but... I, I know people in Hollywood, people in, in sports, they, those, I'm not a superstitious person, but I know that they are. So if we can get past this month, I think, I think we can all breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, he's hoping, yes. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, I just wanted to, you know, I, like I said, on behalf of all of the fans, on behalf of us, just want to say thank you, Kenny Baker, for making Star Wars better and for making the galaxy brighter with your contribution to R2-D2. Uh, and folks, we are going to take a break now to play some promos for other podcasts. We will be back in a few minutes to talk about Star Wars fan regrets. Don't go away. Doom Patrol. 1963. Doom Patrol debut. My Greatest Adventure, issue 80. 1964. My Greatest Adventure, renamed Doom Patrol. Issue 85. 1968. Doom Patrol, destroyed. Issue 121. 1976. The new Doom Patrol. Showcase 94. 
1987. Doom Patrol, Volume 2, Coverberg Lytle. 1989, Morrison and Case. Issue 19. 1993, Pollack. Issue 64. 2001, Doom Patrol, Volume 3, Arcudi Hewitt. 2004, Doom Patrol, Volume 4, Burn. Shush. 2009, Doom Patrol, Volume 5, Giffen Clark. 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016. Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast, because we're waiting. Available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Podbean.com. It's a beautiful evening. The moon is just rising. A full moon. It will soon be as bright as day. An ancient evil erupts from the grounds of Supermates Estates. The House of Frankenstein has risen from the grave. Step this way to gaze upon an exhibit absolutely unparalleled in the realms of showmanship. I have a collection of the world's most astounding horrors. Spine-chilling discussion of classic horror films featuring an all-star cast. Boris Karloff. If I had Frankenstein's records to guide me, I could give you a perfect body. Lon Chaney. Last night I suffered the tortures of the damned. I killed a man. John Carradine. I will come for you before the dawn. Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. There is nothing, do you hear me, nothing more important to me than the success of this experiment. Oliver Reed. I can't, I tell you. I can't remember anything. Lawrence Olivier. You are a most uh, unusual creature, Count Dracula. And Frank Langella. You do not know how many men have come against me. I am the king of my kind. Plus, your favorite superheroes grapple with the world's greatest monsters. You'll never succeed with your crazy plan, Dr. Frankenstein. That's just what Batman said, Superman. And look where you are now. (laughs) A Supermates presentation coming in September and October to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The House of Frankenstein has risen from the grave. We're back, and we're going to talk about something that Paul brought up, the notion of fan regrets, those occasions that sort of broke our hearts as fans for one reason or another. And Paul, you can start. What is your first fan regret? The very first time I saw Star Wars, I got given a souvenir booklet at the cinema. So it was uh, sort of a bit bigger than A4, um, sort of horizontal, opened up. It had, it was printed on sort of like uh, pink, thick paper um, and had Star Wars pictures in it. And I remember poring over this thing after the film because, uh, you know, at the age I saw it, which was probably around 10 or just before my 10th birthday, uh, you know, I had to sort out, were these stormtroopers people or were they robots and all this sort of stuff? And, you know, all the fact that, oh, that guy at the end probably lived rather than spinning off into space forever. Um, <laughs> so all that sort of stuff was new. And I had this book and it was invaluable. It, you know, told me the characters' names, how to spell their names and things like that because we didn't have the internet back then. <laughs> um, 
Anyway, I was so excited by this film and I kept telling my family about it. So uh, pretty soon my older sisters decided they would go off and see the film. And my sister Bronwyn, she asked if she could take the Star Wars booklet with her to look at during the film. I don't know how in the dark, but anyway, I foolishly agreed to this. Um, And she ate too many of a chocolate treat called Maltesers. Do you have Maltesers in America? No, not exactly. I'm sure we have an equivalent, just not with the same name. You probably have five equivalents because you're America. Um, Anyway. (laughs) And they're bigger. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Anyway, these are uh, are malt balls that are covered in chocolate. And she ate too many of them and threw up on my Star Wars souvenir booklet. (laughs) And uh, I think they made the decision at the cinema to throw it away. So uh, I never saw that again. (laughs) So that's my first. That's my first big regret. I wish I had that booklet. It meant a lot to me back then. Anyway. Now, the second story I have is uh, I went and saw Empire Strikes Back. And this is one of the happiest memories of my childhood is uh, my dad got tickets to the premiere of Empire Strikes Back in Australia. So um, it was a charity screening where it was raising money for the Red Cross or something like that. And so we went to uh, Hoyts in Sydney. um, And one thing I didn't know when we were going there, so this was the first time Empire Strikes Back had been shown in Australia, as far as I know, Mark Hamill was there in the audience and he introduced the film and Billy Dee Williams was there too. (laughs) And uh, so this was incredibly exciting. And um, yeah, uh, it's one of of my favourite childhood memories um, and a real special time with my dad because my dad didn't do lots of this sort of stuff with me. So this was pretty special and out out of the ordinary. And I know it didn't cost the same price as seeing a film at the regular price so you know and it was fantastic and that's my favorite star wars film and it blew my mind seeing it back then (laughs) completely (laughs) you know um and once again before the internet so i saw it in the cinema and did not know about darth vader being luke's father at the time sorry spoilers for those who aren't familiar (laughs) so that was fantastic but my one regret of this is I can't find any evidence of this screening at this point in time. Like, I've searched the internet. Um, no one has – there's no record of it anywhere that there was a premiere screening in Sydney with Mark Hamill and Billy Dee Williams there. Oh, <laughs> so, really? And I was trying to find out the day. My mum used to keep a diary, so every night she would write a diary about what happened in the day. And I asked her to check through her diaries around that year to see, you know, can uh-huh. she find, the, you know, what night it was or things like that. And um, there's a two-month period where she didn't keep any records. So, <laughs> So I don't even know what day it was I've seen it. So I have no evidence of that. And, you know, people say to me, oh, why did, did you take a camera and take photos? And it's like, uh, no, <laughs> because, you know, I was, what, 13 and we didn't, you know, cameras were really, you know, clunky pieces of machinery back then and you needed to get film developed and all that sort of stuff. So you, know, you, so, you, know, you didn't take a, a selfie with your big, no. like, you know, five pound Nikon camera or whatever? No, I didn't have my iPhone with me at that point. Oh, no. <laughs> So I can so, I can challenge you. I can say I don't think that story really happened. I don't think you did see a screening with Mark Hamill and Billy D. Williams. Prove it. Uh, I can't. I can't <laughs> prove it. Oh, no, that is awful. <laughs> oh, but uh, what a happy memory! I hope it's real. I <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, those are the worst kind of memories. The ones that you doubt later on after they meant so much to you. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so. Uh, 
let's let's jump ahead to 1985. So, um, you know, Return of the Jedi has been and gone by this point. Um, Star Wars is cooling off a bit as terms of popularity in toys. And um, I was quite into the toys and there was a point there probably uh, deluding myself for a few months where I thought, I'm going to buy every single Star Wars toy. Um, and soon I realized, you know, with my parents and our budget and all that sort of stuff, that was never, ever going to happen. So um, <laughs> I became selective. I really liked droids. I really liked the Empire characters and things like that. But somewhere around 1985, um, G.I. Joe toys were everywhere. They had more points of articulation. And I was kind of into them. You know, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you can relate to this. I, yeah, absolutely. That's that's why my brother and I started collecting GI Joe toys in the first place was to to yeah. supplement the Star Wars toys. Yeah, and they had cool vehicles and stuff. And I was, you know, honestly, I was a teenager when this uh, happened. So, but I sold all my toys to all my Star Wars toys to a friend to get money to buy GI Joe figures. So, which I did. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, he got my Death Star playset, the cardboard one, which was sort of like a half sphere yeah. with uh, uh, cutaway walls and things like that. Um, he got all my figures. I'd kept most of them in good shape, so I had the lightsabers and all that sort of thing. I still had the points on Luke's lightsaber that fitted in his arm. Um, I had a hand Solo that had a tiny head. There was one with a really big, weird head that I hated, and mine had a tiny head that looked much better, um, <laughs> things like that. But I sold them all to John Grouse in Wentworth Falls that, uh, that year. Um, there is a funny story I might slip in about G.I. Joe because um, when G.I. Joe toys hit, and I think it was a little after they were hitting in America, um, they had the coupon on the back and you could cut out and send in and you get like uh, accessories like yep. a backpack and guns and stuff. And I cut all that out and it sent it all in. And one night my family and I were sitting at dinner and um, I am at this age 17, okay. 18. Something like that. And there's a knock on the door and there's this man at the door and my dad answered the door and he said, hi, I'm wondering if Paul Hicks is here. He's the first boy in, a, in all of Australia to send in for this um, redeem, redemption. <laughs> and then I rock up and you could see the look on his face is like, oh, crap, it's a teenager. Because <laughs> I think he wanted to make a little boy's night and he gave me this Jeep. <laughs> Probably wasn't the same feeling when he met a 17-year-old. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, the uh, the company that distributed them was actually uh, you know about fifteen kilometres from where I lived. So this guy decided to pop by on his way home one night. So. Oh, wow. oh dear. Nice. Anyway, so I did a lot with GI Joe toys for a while. I mostly did war gaming and stuff. My friend and I would set up you know missiles and shoot them over and things like that and have games and all that sort of stuff. Anyway. Around 1987, Star Wars toys were cold as, so no one was interested in them. Um, and Australia became this dumping ground for the, the Star Wars figures of the rest of the world. So um, around 1987, you could go to most um, you know department stores in Australia and find Star Wars toys for a dollar, mint on card. And one that was everywhere was uh, Yak Face. Okay. Now, <laughs> with triple logo on the card. Now, they were everywhere. And my friend and I, I think I, he bought a whole bunch of them. We used them in the war game to knock over and things like that and shooting things at them. Um, and his mum got rid of them all. But they were literally a dime a dozen. They were everywhere. And I've just looked them up on eBay, and they're all worth about $2,500 now. <laughs> <laughs> and we could have bought them for a dollar back then. Anyway, so I wish I'd known. There's lots of things about toys I'd wish I'd known when I was a kid. Because, oh, uh, I hear yeah. that. I, I completely agree with that. Yeah. Anyway, what about you, Ryan? You got anything? Any regrets? Uh, there are a couple, and 
the one actually I was just thinking that you, your stories kind of just made me remember was during that same sort of period where after the Star Wars toys had kind of faded out and it wasn't popular, the Dark Ages, as we call, before the resurgence in the mid-90s with like the second power of the Force line. I remember, for some reason, I think it might have been after my brother and my mom and I went to like a, a Disney World theme park and we saw like... We went on like a Star Wars ride. It might have been at like the MGM Studios theme park ride or something like that. And there was a a souvenir store with like Star Wars t-shirts. I remember getting a a shirt with Boba Fett on it. Really cheap and crummy shirt, but it was still, it had Boba Fett and I liked Boba Fett at the time. But I remember getting a model playset of like the Battle of Hoth. And at this point, the, the you couldn't find new Star Wars toys, and even the ones we had had been trashed for years because my brother was growing out of them. He wasn't interested in them anymore, and I had been sort of too young when I first got to play with them, so I broke most of what we had. So we didn't have a lot of good Star Wars toys left. But I found this model of the Battle of Hoth, and I was like, oh, this is really cool. This is something I can see. I could get into Star Wars models. This is still a thing. And it included, like, an AT-AT, like, this whole weird, like, landscape of, like, the Hoth terrain and a rebel spaceship. And I got these, and I'm not a... Manual dexterity is not one of my things. Like, my hands are weird, and I I have what is known in the medical profession as stupid fingers. Um, That's that's why, like, it takes me forever to text or to send, like, a, a message or something, like, on my phone because I want it to look good and professional and grammatically correct and in order to do that i need to like be very careful in how i text and it takes me a long time to do it um i also don't play like word games or whatever on my phone like i used to try and play like scrabble app games or whatever and i always came off sounding like an idiot so i don't do that anymore but so i was able to eventually kind of put these cheap kind of plastic models of the atat and the rebel ships together and then i went and tried to paint them Oh, no. And me working with a tiny paintbrush, like the size of a pin, a pinhead, and these delicate model paints, oh, it looked like a crime scene or something. It was, it was it, like, crazy expressionistic art all over this, like, this model. And it looked so bad by the time I tried to paint just half of it. I was like, this is never going to look authentic this is never going to look good this is a waste of my time i'm making like it actually looked better as just the dull gray plastic than it was as whatever it was that i was going to paint it so i was like i i actually kind of ruined it by attempting to paint it and i just kind of it broke my heart because i kind of spoiled this thing that could have been a cool thing like if i'd gotten into like models or something and i just realized i don't have the talent for this I can't paint things this small. I'm not that good at anything. It just it broke my heart, and I think I end up like trashing. I think I broke. I stepped on the ATAT or something in frustration. Yeah, that, that was kind of heartbreaking. Oh, I um, think I know the set you mean. I, that was a very cool set. Yeah, and I'm trying to think of like other other regrets. I mean, I, I mentioned this story I think back when I was doing the Dead Boff and Spies, the precursor to this podcast. But the Phantom Menace came out my junior year of high school. Me and another friend, Jerry, we skipped school that day to go stand in line so we could get 12 tickets for us and all of our friends. Uh, and 
thinking that you know we're, we're clearly playing hooky we're supposed to be in school but we skipped class but that would have been one thing but there was also like a news van that showed up and people just sort of interviewing you know who are these weird little fans that are willing to you know camp outside for five hours just to get tickets to a movie and i did a news interview which probably wasn't the smartest thing to do when i'm <laughs> skipping school but figuring it's like ten thirty in the morning like none of my teachers are going to be listening to this one of my teachers heard the interview, of course, asked me about it the next day. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, Mr. Doherty. <laughs> but, <laughs> I was like, I don't think that was me. He's like, you really? He said your name. It sounded just like you. I was like, no, I don't, I don't think that was me, <laughs> sir. Sorry. I, yeah, I had an ear infection or something. That's why I missed school yesterday. But, <laughs> but then, I mean, so just like that, that was kind of a fun experience of doing that. And then actually seeing the movie with all of those friends that I had gotten tickets for and having them judge me like it was my idea to bring them in the first place, uh, and including my then at the time girlfriend who wasn't a fan of Star Wars and wasn't really a fan of me. Like, we, we shouldn't have been dating. We didn't really have anything in common. We just convinced each other that we were going to like each other for some reason. And so, so watching that movie became an unpleasant experience. And it kind of soured this, what should have been really cool, which was, you know, skipping school to get tickets for the first Star Wars movie that I've seen in, like, you know, 15 years or whatever it was at the time. Wow. But... Yeah, and then I, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the biggest Star Wars regret is that Star Wars led me to meeting my wife, uh, and that was awful, awful, terrible. Yeah, <laughs> I will Say tell. No more. I will tell that story on another day, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and I got to give a shout out to Aaron Bias who has been on the show before. I'm sure he would say the biggest victims of Star Wars fan regrets are all of the people who bought Constable Zuvio toys when The Force Awakens <laughs> came out, thinking that, oh, this is going to be the next, you know, Chewbacca. And, right. Oh, well, yeah. I can tell you about Episode 1, because uh, when Episode 1 was coming out, um, it was coming out on the 19th of May, 1999, mm-hmm. and my wife was pregnant with my first child at the time. So, uh, you know, I was looking at the date and said, okay, well, the baby's due on the 12th, so that should be fine. Um my daughter was born the day the movie came out, so I didn't get to see it at the time. Okay. <laughs> and and then you've got the, you know, hey, we've got a new good-born baby. And then it's, how yeah. long is it um, tactfully cool to ask to go to the movies when you've got a newborn baby? <laughs> um, so I think it was about nine days before I got to see The Phantom Menace after it came out. But uh, in retrospect, not much of a regret, really, to that. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, so my daughter was born on Star Wars Day, as it was back then. Oh, that's cool. So, and she's um, sitting in this room playing on a computer. She is 17 right now, so there we go. Very cool. That's mm. awesome. Um, now, there's one more regret. Uh, do you want me to do a really heavy one? Sure. We can, we can end okay. on a heavy one. That's fine. Okay. Um The day we saw Attack of the Clones, my wife and I went to see that film, um, and... Uh, I, I don't want to bring down the wrath of anyone, but I think that's my favorite prequel. Am I allowed to say that? You, yeah. you say it's not my least favorite, so that's... I'm... <laughs> okay. <laughs> if in doubt, I fall back on action, and that one had action. So, okay. you know, I quite enjoyed that. And 
Uh, by the time the last one came out, I thought it was just going through the motions to get to an ending that didn't really make any sense, but we all knew was coming. So I agree uh, with that. I completely agree with that. Yeah. So Attack of the Clones is my favorite. It's got some, you know, I like the uh, bass guitar explosions in the uh, <laughs> asteroid field and things like that. And um, Actually, the- I, 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 I'm just throwing this out there for context and kind of, you know, uh, supporting your thinking that... I think Attack of the Clones has some of my favorite individual moments or ideas or concepts from any of the prequels, but I still crazily kind of liked uh, The Phantom Menace a little bit more, or I had fewer problems with The Phantom Menace than with Attack of the Clones. Like, Attack of the Clones, I think, had some of the highest highs, but also the lowest lows, if that makes any sense. But there was a lot. There were definitely elements of... Attack of the Clones that I really that I enjoyed and would have liked to see in a better movie. But anyway, so yeah, go on, go on. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so saw Attack of the Clones, quite enjoyed it. Um. Went home, and in the middle of that night, we got a phone call. Um. My wife's mother was uh had fallen ill. Mm-hmm. Um. And yeah, uh, that was the night we discovered she had a brain tumor, and um. That. Five months later, she was gone. So I always associate Attack of the Clones with that tragic event, which is, you know, really sad. And, you know, I'm, I mean, I, some people complain about their mother-in-laws. I had a great mother-in-law. She's a, a lovely lady and um, I really miss her. And, you know, particularly with my daughter and um, my son that, you know, she was taken too soon while my daughter was around and she never got to meet my son. So, yeah, that's really sad for me. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's you know, it's a weird thing to associate with the film, but that's something that I always will because of that. Um, anyway, yeah, happier stories. Um, <laughs> in uh, 2013, I went to America on holiday with my family, and uh, we went to uh, California and went to uh, Disneyland, <laughs> mm-hmm. as people do. That's what and, you do. Um, yeah, that is, that is the thing. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, None of my kids were really into the rides, which was kind of frustrating. So, and my wife was kind of tired, and I, she said, "You just go on Star Tours." And I queued up, and you know, I don't know if you've been through uh, Disneyland or Disney World when you're on your own, but you get into things faster <laughs> because they they squeeze you in on the empty seats yeah, at the end yeah, of things. That's, yeah. yeah, any loser here with no friends, and you you know, you go, "I'm here," and they bring you to the front, and off you go. So I did um, Star Tours and came out, and uh, that was great. And it was, you know, we went to uh, I think Hoth and you know all that sort of stuff, and I was going, "That was fantastic," and I wanted to do it again, but you know, um, looking at the watch and everything, decided not to. We didn't really have time. Um, get back home a couple of months later, listening to a podcast, discover there's lots of different versions of the Star Tours ride. I had no idea. <laughs> I would have ridden it 20 times if I'd known, but oh, I only yeah. rode it once. I thought, oh, I've, li- I've seen it now. <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> so I regret that. Um, yeah. But um, honestly, the prequel sort of tainted my enjoyment of Star Wars a bit. Um I, it was a bit reluctant to get back into Star Wars with, um, yeah, Force Awakens. And I think it did a good job of saying sorry and sort of inviting me back. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I'm still to get there completely with Star Wars. You know, I, Star Wars is, it's like a girlfriend that's cheated on you and, <laughs> you know, been around town with other people and treated you really badly. And, you know, you got to, you know, sometimes you got to think, do I really want to have it back? Um so that's a little bit where I'm at with Star Wars. So that's one of my regrets. But I'm, you know, I like the look of uh, Rogue One, and um, you know, and certainly there will be enough Star Wars films in my future. But one will be my favourite. 
assuming there's going to be one until the day I die from now on. As long as they're <laughs> making money. As, as long yeah. as they're making money, that's their plan. And and I agree with you. I, I think a lot of fans, certainly fans of our generation from the 60s to the 80s, who kind of grew who grew up as kids watching the originals, I think a lot of us felt similarly burned by the prequels. And, and some of them just never covered some of them it wouldn't matter what new movies were coming out they're just they're done with it and i think part of that is the fact of the quality of the movies some of it is just age you know i i think and that was one of the big takeaways when i saw the force awakens and how it took me two viewings for me to really enjoy it the first time i saw it i was i was kind of ambivalent to down on the movie uh, and I was only looking at like the things like that, that I didn't like, and it was really bothering me about that because I was like, I thought this was the movie that was going to redeem all of the messes of of the prequel movies that I didn't enjoy. I thought this was the movie that was going to make Star Wars good again, and I didn't see that the first time I watched it. I only saw I, and I think that was more about me needing to realize I am a different person. I am a different moviegoer. I have different expectations. And I need to kind of get myself back into a, a sort of headspace where I can accept these things. And then I, I, after that, I saw The Force Awakens six more times in the theater. Uh, so <laughs> clearly, clearly, I'm a pretty big fan of that movie. Uh, it just took me a little while to get there. Yeah, well, I mean, I saw it twice, so and that was enough for me. I still haven't bought it on uh, for home video. I'm just waiting for the 3D version to come out, which if it ever does. Because uh, I didn't buy a 3D TV for no reason. Um, <laughs> yeah, hopefully. I mean, I think at some point Star Wars went from being Star Wars films to just films for me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're right. It is part of aging. You start to, you know, you think about how things are made and plot choices and things like that more than just letting a story wash over you the older you get. And uh, yeah, I'm really hoping that Star Wars becomes magical again for me at some point. And, you know, I think they're doing all they can. Yeah, yeah. I do. And I'm hoping, it feels like right now, they're still trying to bank on what made them popular in the first place. I mean, obviously, The Force Awakens was a love letter to the original Star Wars movies. And I think, I I understand why that was. I think they thought it sort of needed to be in order to bring so many old, lapsed fans back. And Rogue One telling a different story, and if... If what they're saying is true, it's going to feel like a different type of movie, but it's still very reverential. It's you know it, we're still tied into that world of the first Star Wars movie. It's going to have Darth Vader. It's going to have familiar-looking ships and and stormtroopers. And after that, like in two years, we're going to get a Han Solo origin movie. I hope once we get past you know Episode Nine, whatever that is, I hope they are able to sort of say, okay, Star Wars the brand. We're in the this position of strength. Let's do something different. Let's take some chances. Let's go far afield, like way out in the future, way out in the past. Let's do something unexpected with this property. And I, I hope they get to the point where they're comfortable enough taking a risk like that, because maybe that's what it needs. Maybe that's what the franchise needs to kind of grow and thive. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be opportunity for all sorts of experimentation mm-hmm. if they choose to do it. Yeah. You know, and with these new films, they might develop some, you know, thread or subplot that, that can be spun off and things like that. You know, we don't know what's going to be popular and what they're developing. Um, yeah, so it will, we'll have to wait and see, won't we? Yeah, hope so. so. Anyway, 
Uh, I think that'll be it for our Star Wars fan regrets conversation. Thank you very much for bringing this up. It was kind of fun going down these nostalgic personal roads. But before you go, Paul, are you ready to answer the galactic questionnaire? Oh, am I? Hell yeah. (laughs) All right, question one. Would you rather drive Luke Skywalker's land speeder from Star Wars A New Hope or Rey's speeder from The Force Awakens? Uh, Luke Skywalker's. You could put a stereo in that, I reckon. (laughs) Ah, I never thought of that. Yeah, that's yeah, no. That might change my answer. <laughs> uh, question two: Classic Imperial Stormtrooper or First Order Stormtrooper? Uh, classic Imperial, because I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Question three: Would you rather have a lightsaber or Boba Fett's jetpack? This is the easiest answer in the world. I would like a lightsaber. Um, I don't know if you know this about me. I live on a farm. Mm-hmm. There are a billion things you can do on a farm with a lightsaber that you can't do with a jetpack. Um, you can chop firewood with it. You can, um, you know, dig a hole with it. You can trim the bushes with it. You can, you, know, you could probably shear a sheep with it if I'm if I'm game to try that. <laughs> Endless possibilities. I would love to find out. Number four. Would you rather live on Tatooine or Dagobah? Oh, now this is uh, this is a Sophie's choice for me. I, I, I hate being hot and I hate being damp. Um, I probably, uh, I reckon I'd do better at staying dry and warm on Dagobah than I would staying cool on um, Tatooine. Yeah, so Dagobah. All right. But yeah, yucky. Not a fan of the dry heat. Prefer the humidity. So. Well. Okay, I shouldn't say prefer it, but <laughs> more tolerable, I guess. So. <laughs> Um, not counting Boba Fett, who is the coolest bounty hunter introduced in The Empire Strikes Back? Uh, Bosk. Alright. Number six, would you rather go on a date with Princess Leia or Carrie Fisher? Carrie Fisher would be heaps more fun and would have much more interesting stories, I reckon. <laughs> and Princess Leia, I mean, she would be going, what the hell am I having dinner with you? You know, <laughs> she would be uh, looking for some sort of, you know, she is a woman of purpose. I don't think having dinner with me would serve any of her purposes. Whereas Carrie Fisher, a bottle of wine, she'd be happy, you know. Yeah. Princess Leia is so judgmental. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. And the final question, if you had the force, would you be pulled to the light side or the dark side? Um, light side generally, but as soon as I'm behind a car, I would fall completely to the dark side. I'd be force lightning other cars. I would be (laughs) choking people. Um, I am an angry driver, so, you know, it would be the worst thing in the world for me. You know, don't give me superpowers either. It's because, you know, I would be a terrible, terrible person. (laughs) All right. So you'd be on the light side as long as you weren't driving or in a car. So good. Good to know. So. In, a, in a land speeder. Land speed, right. Not, <laughs> not a speeder bike, but okay. All right. Well, Paul, thank you very much for being on this episode of Give Me Those Star Wars. Where else can people hear you if they want to hear more from you on podcasting realm or wherever? Uh, I do a little podcast, Waiting for Doom, as you mentioned before. It's a Doom Patrol podcast. It's an um, exciting to, time to be a Doom Patrol fan. Um, and I do that with another Aussie called Mike, who lives uh, about 600 kilometers away from me. No, longer than that, 900. Anyway, uh, we live way, way apart, but we've pod- been podcasting together for uh, about a year and a half now. And, um, yeah, best partner I've ever had for anything except for marriage. <laughs> yeah, and apart from that, I'm on Twitter at reading underscore Hicks, H-I-X, and... Um, I am I'm good if you don't like things too serious. Uh, I'm the, the follower for you. <laughs> there you go. Yes, and I'm always on your message boards uh, replying to your podcasts and 
you know, annoying you, I think. And I appreciate it. That's why you've been on so many. So Thank you very much again. This was great. Thank you for bringing up these topics. This was a lot of fun to talk about. Thanks, mate. Yes, I was pleased. I mean, it's an ongoing situation, I think. Uh, people get married, have kids, and they present them with the, the movie that they've already got. And then they, it goes on and on and on. We've got about three or four generations of children uh, watching it, you know, especially this week. It's been on television not long ago, and all the interest is reignited again. Well, it's, it's good for kids, isn't it? It's a good, good kids' movie. And, you know, there's no blood and real murders of any kind, so, and there's no swearing of any kind, which these days is quite a, it's a different thing altogether. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm getting about, about three letters a day from all over the world, from Argentina and Finland today. So, you, you, you know, you'd be surprised, really. After I talked to Paul, I looked up the infamous model set, and of course I misremembered. It wasn't a Battle of Hoth set, but a Rebel base on Hoth set. It was basically the main hangar that included the Millennium Falcon, a Rebel transport, a bunch of starfighters and snowspeeders. No AT-AT, I don't know why I was remembering that. I found some pictures online of the set, which had clearly been painted by a guy who didn't bring dishonor to his family. I'll include those images on the Fire and Water website post for this episode. Anyway, on to your listener feedback. The last proper episode of Give Me Those Star Wars got a lot of fun comments on the website. That episode, you'll recall, was about the Star Wars Treasury comics, and many of the comments that followed were from fans sharing their history with Treasury comics. I'm not going to read those comments, but I did want to give a shout-out to the listeners who left feedback, including Chris Franklin, Mike Gillis, Rob Kelly, Jeff R., Paul NKC, Chuck Coletta, and Daniel Budnick. I also got a comment from the Irredeemable Shag who said, While I never owned the Star Wars Treasury Editions, I own the opposite of one, the Return of the Jedi comic book novel. Such a weird item. Size of a small paperback book, but inside were all of the comic panels from Return of the Jedi comic adaptation, cut up and pasted to be read page by page. Wow, that does sound like a weird one. I also got a lengthy comment from Jeff Nettleton. Jeff talked about Howard Chaykin's experience in space opera stories prior to Star Wars and said that the series really picked up when Archie Goodwin and Walt Simonson came aboard. And I think everyone sort of universally agrees with that. Then Jeff chimed in on something Rob and I talked about regarding the deleted scenes from the movie that were included in the comic book adaptation and the novelization. I can confirm that the scenes at Tashi Station were filmed, Jeff said. I have Star Wars Deleted Magic, which has the cut footage, alternate takes, and behind-the-scenes footage. Also filmed was a scene at the beginning of Luke working on an evaporator and noticing lights in the sky, and then seeing it in his macro binoculars. Darth Vader is referred to as a Lord of the Sith in the Star Wars novelization, and the term is used in Starlog and other publications around Star Wars, including the Star Wars poster magazine. In the early drafts, the Sith were supposed to be mercenary knights who work for the Empire, led by Prince Valorum. Darth Vader is the name of an Imperial officer who is a dishonorable coward. When Valorum sees Vader torturing Deke Starkiller, who is captured by the Empire instead of a princess, Valorum is angered by this lack of honor and changes sides. The Sith were heavily influenced by the Bascone pirates of E.E. E. Doc Smith's Galactic Patrol from his Lensman series. 
That novel features the pirates in space armor attacking a galactic patrol ship from the void of space. That was how Lucas originally envisioned the Imperial attack, and was the reasoning behind the Stormtrooper armor and Vader's armor. Deke is seen in Ralph McQuarrie are in breathing gear facing Vader. Well, very cool for that information. Thank you very much, Jeff. Um, and it does kind of go to, and I, I never heard all, some of that some of that information I knew, but I didn't hear all of it, but it certainly goes to my thinking that the Sith were originally sort of this kind of mercenary group, or this group that was working for the Empire, but not necessarily the anti-Jedi, so... Anyway, uh, on to the feedback from last episode, which was the Rogue One trailer review I did with Aaron Bias. This episode got more feedback from Shag and Jeff Nettleton. Also comments from Rift, who said, Thanks, guys, for suffering through the Olympics to bring us this episode. It must have been pure torture. But I knew you wouldn't let this trailer release slip by without covering it, Ryan. Good man. Eh, that's what I'm here for. Uh, Rift says, the trailer was pretty good. Aaron's description of the Magnificent Seven, Dirty Dozen, is spot on, and I think that is to help tell the story like you, said Ryan, to show us why the Empire was so bad that we didn't see it directly before. The blind samurai is totally Force-sensitive. He feels like a youngling that was off-planet when Order 66 was given. Oh, 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 maybe that's how he became blind? Also, the druid... Yeah, Rift wrote Druid when he meant Droid, and this led to a whole thread of jokes about Druids in Star Wars. Anyway, Rift said, The Droid, K2SO, looks to me to have callings from the Super Battle Droids from the prequels. It would be cool to see that this is what became of them after the Clone Wars. Siskoid said, I am very excited about Rogue One, and if you know me, you know saying that about a Star Wars film comes with a large helping of Crow. While it's hard to beat the perfection of the Rogue One teaser, which made me well up in theaters even after I'd seen it numerous times, it's the way the music is used, I'm happy to see more of Donnie Yen in his... I'm happy to see more of Donnie Yen in this longer trailer. Donnie is my favorite modern-day Hong Kong action star, and I consider myself something of a connoisseur. And I can't tell you how happy and eager I am to see him in this. Yeah, I have a feeling that Donnie Yen's character is going to be a breakout fan favorite. And Chris Franklin said... I'm in for this either way, but the more I see it, the more I like it. The seedier side of the Star Wars universe, but very obviously that universe. I was thinking of the Magnificent Seven and Dirty Dozen as well, and of course that idea is floating about in the ether quite a lot due to the Magnificent Seven remake and Suicide Squad. The talk of the original Star Wars not really showing us how bad the Empire was proves many folks' points that the original film really didn't flesh things out much better than The Force Awakens. I don't mean to bring up that hoary debate again, but I'm just saying. Thank you again to all of those listeners who left comments on the website, and thanks to everyone who promotes Give Me Those Star Wars on social media. Remember, there's another Force Friday coming up about a month from now. That'll mean plenty of new Star Wars toys, collectibles, and merchandise, and that means no shortage of opportunities for new fan regrets like what Paul and I discussed. I want to thank Paul Hicks one more time for being my guest on this episode, and because I didn't make it overtly clear in my introduction, this episode of Give Me Those Star Wars is dedicated to the memory of Kenny Baker. Ah, we're not interested in the hyperdrive on the Millennium Falcon in space. Just open the door, you stupid lump! Oh, my God.
never doubted you for a second. Wonderful! Give me those Star Wars is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Give Me Those Star Wars. You can also find me on Twitter at ryandaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Part of the theme music for this podcast is performed by the Evil Genius Orchestra from their album Star Wars Cocktails in the Cantina, available for purchase on iTunes and at Amazon Music. That and all other music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. Give Me Those Star Wars is not affiliated with Disney or Lucasfilm, and I make no money from this podcast, so no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. <laughs>